Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind-the-scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwarzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Jamal Mashburn. You know him as a big NBA star. What I think is even cooler and more impressive is his career as an entrepreneur, investor, and company builder. Jamal has investments in car dealerships, fast food restaurants, regular restaurants, garbage, waste, and transportation. It is a tremendously fascinating empire that he has built, and it all started from his upbringing, how he was growing up. He constantly said he used the NBA to get to the point where he was carrying a briefcase. We discuss how he built his company, what were some of the insights he learned in the NBA, how he translated it to business, how he's found success in the car business, and what he's learned from operating businesses in multiple investment cycles. Please enjoy my conversation today with Jamal Mashburn. So Jamal, I've been wanting to get you on the pod for a while. We had lunch a couple months ago and I was just blown away by your perspective because it was very unique from any of my friends and a lot of people (laughs) that I've spoken to. I thought a really cool place to start would be for you to tell us the earliest kind of business memory you had that made you realize that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? That's a great question. So for me, it started as a kid. I tell people my first business decision was when I uh, failed at playing basketball, baseball at 10 years old. And when you're 10 years old, my first love was, was baseball. I recently got a chance to meet one of my heroes when I was growing up. His name is Dave Winfield. He played for the Yankees and I grew up in Harlem and I could walk across the bridge to 161st Street in Yankee Stadium and watch them play. Con Edison, back in the 70s, they were giving out bleacher seats for $5 and they used to come to the neighborhood and give them out. So I would go as much as I can because I love baseball. And growing up watching Dave Winfield, I wanted to be him. I sat right behind him. I think he was a left field or a right field. I can't remember, but I remember sitting in those seats, watching him and just idolizing him. And I don't know what it was about him. I think because he was tall, you know, athletic. And later I found out he was drafted in like baseball, basketball, and also football. Really? Yeah, one one of few players that ever do that. And I want to try out for a baseball team my dad took me to. And they already had a team assembled. And <laughs> I went out there. And it was the first time that I actually played live baseball. Cause when you grow up in New York city, concrete jungle, yep. you play, you play stickball. Yep. So it didn't translate how good I was at stickball. It's a baseball. 
And I remember the coach coming up to my dad and saying, you know, he's not ready. You know, we're, we're not going to accept him on the team or whatever. And my dad telling me that and I cried all the way home. And I remember that day I made a pact with myself and said to myself that I was never going to be unprepared for opportunity ever again in my life. And for me, that started the entrepreneurial spirit. It, it said a lot about for me that. I wasn't prepared, but I was 10 years old. So my self-awareness was high at that particular time. And I didn't really understand the opportunity. And I didn't have the proper coaching. I didn't have the proper resources as far as glove or, or mentorship. And so I decided to spend three years by myself playing basketball and honing my skill set. So that led to me becoming an entrepreneur and it taught me how to pivot, how to deal with failure and becoming a basketball player, how to deal with success. And then also, how do you build one block that leads to another block? And it's almost like building a house. So my idea of entrepreneurship has always been, think of it as a foundation, a home with multiple rooms in it that you can take people through. You know, it's like an infrastructure. It's like, a, 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 I never just wanted to just have a living room. I wanted to have a master bedroom. You know, and I can take people through and those rooms represented different, maybe different industries or, or, or industry that can split that I can do different things in. So for me, that was why I chose to become an entrepreneur. And then also my dad was a professional boxer and he was a journeyman fighter. He fought Larry Holmes, Ken Norton, sparred with Muhammad Ali in the seventies. He was a heavyweight. And I watched him have to take fights on short notice. And I watched him become a professional athlete that made no money. And if you know anything about boxing, usually the top 1% make money, the ones that you know, Floyd Mayweather's, the Mike Tyson's, listed so forth and so on. But the other guys are the underbelly right. of the sport. They're fighting in armories, right. you know, different places like that. So I watched my dad do that. And I watched him become bitter because he didn't make the right choices as far as management was, was concerned. And um, my mom had to tell him that it was time for him to get a job. So my dad became an NYPD officer after he left boxing. But I really got a chance to see what professional sports really is rather than the pop and glitter. So my decision was I wanted to be a professional basketball player that led to something. I just didn't want it to stop there. My, my dream was to carry a briefcase. And growing up in New York City, my mom took me to a, a Catholic school in downtown New York City. Uh, it was over there by Hunter College and 68th Street where I would get off the train at. And I saw people carrying a briefcase. And that's what I wanted to do. I didn't know what a briefcase represented. Years later, I found out that a lot of people ain't carrying much in there, but sandwiches <laughs> or, and back, back in the day, a ruler you know what I mean? <laughs> or something like that. But to me, that represented utilization of my brain. And I didn't want to be the, uh, if I was going to pursue athletics and be a professional athlete, I didn't want to be an athlete that didn't have anything to fall forward to. And that was important to me. And my mom used to always stress education. You know, you got to have something to fall back on. And I often used to debate her about fall back seems like failure. Why not fall forward? And so to me, I, I utilize sport to um, start my own operating company with me and my business partner. We're based in Lexington, Kentucky. It's a, called MAP, M-A-P. We started out with Outback Steakhouse. It was one of our first investment. I was a limited partner in that back in 
94, I believe it was, 93, 94. Wow. Did really well with that. Um, wound up selling that. We had the territory in California and we had opened up, I think it was 34 stores led by uh, uh, another gentleman who played at uh, University of Florida. His name is uh, Tommy Shannon. And he led that group and everybody thought I was in the restaurant space because my name was announced alongside of Outback and I was just a limited partner in the deal. And we rode the wave and people just started coming to us for restaurant deals. Got involved with uh, Papa John's. We grew that to probably about what 80 to 100 stores. We still have those holding today. We have less today, probably about 25 today because we sold some. And uh, got involved in the car business with Lexus and Toyota. Uh, we have six stores now, do very well in the Southeast and Midwest. And then also in the waste management business. We're a, a hauler of trash, so I'm looking to do a roll-up strategy on that and have a, a pretty large institution that's willing to back me on that to roll up uh, hauling companies and also transfer stations. Yep. And then on my side stuff uh, with my company, Helen Holdings, been an investor in hotels. We have a hotel in Rochester, Minnesota, 175 Key Hyatt House right next to the Mayo Clinic. Yep. So that's what got me involved in the hospitality space. And how I got involved in the hospitality space is one day I was just thinking, how do I take all the experience that I've learned in the franchise space, the automobile space, what's kind of the next adventure? And I started to look at the hospitality spaces, A, real estate, and then also operations, management team, and all those different things. What are demand drivers? That's why I picked something close to a, a hospital or a transportation hub. And, and, and I wanted to be involved in an extended stay product, you know, um, or a limited service um, product. I didn't want to go to the luxury product because I think that's where everybody goes when they want to lose money, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, or preserve money, depending on how you look at it. So for me, I, I've always enjoyed different industries based upon the knowledge that I have that can be applied. And one thing that I've always done and looking back on it was me as a basketball player and how I developed as a basketball player was I was a versatile player. I figured out early on that the ball wasn't the most important thing. It's minutes played. So if I can be out there longer than anybody else and the coach can trust me to play me in multiple positions to extend my, my uh, participation, I needed to become a versatile player. So I know how to learn how to handle the ball, dribble the ball, pass the ball. I can play power forward all the way up to point guard. And that's what I applied in business, you know, of constructing teams, being able to insert myself when needed, but also let other people play as well. And that's what I learned from sport as well of how to be a part of a team. You don't necessarily need to be the leading scorer or the leading rebounder. You can be the glue guy sometimes, you know, I typically now want to be the person behind the scenes rather than in front of the camera. I've been in front of the camera and, you know, it's not all cracked up what it's supposed to be, you know, sometimes, you know, it can be a distraction. Yeah. You know, so when you were younger, were you just so good at basketball that you couldn't deny not playing as opposed to going straight into business or becoming an entrepreneur? Or did you really view that as, hey, I need this to create leverage to then go be an entrepreneur? Yeah. So for me, it was, I have to say that uh, growing up in Harlem, there were no business people around me. Business people around me were drug dealers, you know, or murderers and killers, you know, so 
if you call that a business. Uh, but, it's like the movie American Gangster. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what I learned early on was that because of my environment and because of the schools that I went to in my high school, Cardinal Hayes High School in the South Bronx, great high school, but they weren't teaching me anything that was going to apply or make me an entrepreneur or provide me that that insight or education. They were basically teaching me to graduate and to basically go get a trade at the end of the day. That was the name of the game. Go get a trade, work for the NYPD, yep. uh, uh, work for housing authority, which my mother did as a bookkeeper. And that's how I learned debits and credits. And she taught me different things that way about how to balance the books because I watched her collect rent. So for me, it was basketball or sport was a way to leverage and gain enough capital to allow me the freedom to do what I wanted to do. To me, capital provides freedom, you know, so that you can you don't have to rush to make decisions. You can be patient. um, You can dictate terms. So to me, that's what basketball and being in the NBA represented for me. So it was a a leverage point in order to carry that briefcase probably could have could have carried it without it. It just would have been a longer, harder road. My first investment, I made my first investment with Outback, not even having an NBA contract. I signed a lucrative sneaker deal with Fila. That's how I was able to make that investment. And that's also how I was able to start my own scholarship fund at the University of Kentucky, where we put current to date, probably 50 kids through the University of Kentucky. As a as an eighth grader, we find them and we mentor them. And actually, the first guy recipient of the scholarship fund is my chief operating officer for my Papa John source. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So when you do that first Outback deal, mm-hmm. how do you know it was a good deal? And how did you even find that deal? Well, the one thing that, so here, here's the interesting part about it. And as you know, and, and, and some of your listeners may or may not know, sometimes when you have a press release that you're a part of something, people find you and deal flow comes that way because they think you're in that industry or you have some desire or, or you're participating in some way, high or low, whatever it may be. The relationship actually came through uh, Rick Pitino, my head coach at the University of Kentucky at the time. So take a step back. When he recruited me, he was the only coach that listened to what I actually wanted. Um, I had a lot of Hall of Fame coaches on a college level laugh at me because I wanted to carry a briefcase. They were like, why would you want to do that? Just play basketball. And Coach Pitino was the only one that says, I think I can help you. And he realized that in recruiting me that I was an independent thinker, that I could play basketball, and I was very intelligent because it translated on the basketball court. So he had to really uh, figure out quickly of how to, I would say, move with me as opposed to just directing me because I was a kid that always asked questions. Yep. And uh, uh, so for me, I found the Outback investment deal where Chris Sullivan, one of the three founders, went to University of Kentucky and also went to University of Florida, built a relationship with Coach Patino. And he got wind through Coach Patino that I wanted to carry a briefcase. And he said, you think what he would be an investor in, in these California stores of Outback and looked at it, didn't know much about it. And, and to be quite honest with you, the way I kind of looked at it was 
me and my business partner didn't know anything about the restaurant business. But the one thing we did know is how to bet on a jockey, <laughs> Chris Sullivan and his team. And that's what we did. And that's how it started. And the returns were awesome. We got out of that business. They sold it to a private equity fund. And then we started to get a handle on operations when Papa John's came about. So for me, it was not only the jockey and who was leading the investment and their management team, but what can I learn while in this investment to apply moving forward to get deeper into it rather than just being an LP, be a GP yep. and be an operator. So that's that was kind of the methodology. So how have you figured out to like zoom out? Because you said you're a glue player. You learned mm -hmm. how to maximize your time on the court. But then you also applied that to finding a jockey. Yeah. What are the characteristics of a jockey? Um, characteristics of a jockey, I think they come in, in different folds and it's hard to pinpoint sometimes. But the things that I look for are, um, why did you start the business? How intricately involved are you in all facets of the business? What are the teammates around you? How many visible wins have you had or non-visible wins have you had before this? So basically track record. So that's what I look for. And then also what I look for is if you just want my money, I'm probably not going to invest. But if you want my money plus my skill set and you allow and you open the door for me to learn, then I'll entertain it. But if it's just capital or you just want that where I'm not learning anything, it's probably not as valuable to me, you know, at the end of the day. So I look for passion. I look for expertise. I, I also look for guys who are deeply embedded in their particular industry. I don't want them to be like me. Yep. And what I mean be like me is uh, I'm in multiple industries. So I need somebody that uh, it's like starting a basketball team. If I need a point guard, I need a point guard. I don't need a combo guard. <laughs> you know, if I need a shooting guard. I need a shooting guard. You know, so for me, that's what I look for. And Sometimes I make investment like I've made investments recently in the tech space based upon the industries that I am in that I can potentially apply that technology to, yep. meaning the car space or the waste management space. Those are very uh, antiquated businesses that are going to evolve over a period of time to make themselves efficient that are going to need technology. So I always kind of look a little bit further out of seeing how I can apply to make my own business successful. When you think about that foundation, what is important to be in that foundation of the house? You know, great question. For me, it's it starts with me with my core values and my core values. Some of them are, you know, honesty, transparency, a lifelong learner, being curious, unafraid to ask a question. Persistent. So those are all the foundational things for me. And then I layer on top there of I've always had this thing where if I'm passionate about something, I'm typically good at digesting it and learning it. Because for me, I really have to be passionate about it. And how I judge my passion about something is if I don't look at the clock when I'm learning it and time just flies by, because that's how it started for me with basketball. I can be out there for hours and it only felt like I was out there for 10 minutes. And that's where I kind of lean in towards and, and direct myself. So like now I'm looking at automation and artificial intelligence for back of the house restaurants. 
And to me, that's where I'm not a computer guy or a software guy, but because I have a passion to understanding that business and make it more efficient. And then I see it's the wave of the future, especially with labor costs being so high and people not wanting to work and want to work on their own terms. You know, how am I going to protect my business and grow further with it? So I'm big into if I'm passionate about it, I will definitely learn and take the time. But if I'm not passionate about it, probably not going to learn. it. I'm probably not going to invest much time in it. I want to go back to mindset. I've watched a couple sports documentaries like the Jordan one. There was the one with Alex Hono, the guy that climbed with no ropes up that mountain in Yosemite. And it all seems to be around mindset. Mm -hmm. And it usually stems back to something that happened when they were a kid. Yep. Your incident was the stickball, baseball. Yeah. How do you use that mindset today? And like, I want you to talk to me a little bit about mindset because it's the most underrated thing in business, I think. Yeah. You know, I have a growth mindset. My mind is always thinking about growth, about learning, about applying, about, you know, ingesting information. So for me, my mindset started with a trauma. The trauma for me was my mom and dad got divorced when I was 10 years old. Before the divorce, I was a happy-go-lucky kid and different things like that, running around the neighborhood. But when that divorce happened, I became much more uh, introverted and much more introspective. And sometimes you don't realize how traumas can be also beneficial and detrimental to you. You just have to make a choice. And I made a choice to dive into sport in order to participate in the healing process and to be a distraction. And that was probably the best thing for me at that particular time, because that grew that mindset of being introspective, you know, rather than, how do you say, rather than looking outside of myself, I went within and became a person that looked in outward rather than outward in. And what I found with that for me was it allowed me to isolate myself, control my thoughts. It it also made me become very independent in a lot of ways and not rely on people. Because when your dad leaves the house, there's a certain feeling of you're the issue. Because you're so young, you don't really realize adult issues. You just apply it to you. And so for a lot of years, I was angry about that. And that anger was my fuel that drove me. One of the reasons why I retired, and I retired from basketball in 2004 or 2005, I don't know what it was, but everybody thought it was a knee injury. And it was a knee injury. But I could have possibly came back after a year or something like that. But for me, what I realized was I was in a transition that I no longer wanted to be driven by that fuel of anger. I thought it was great for that physical element of me to participate in that environment, meaning the NBA and college basketball, but it wasn't going to serve me well uh, moving forward because, you know, anger can only drive you so much. And how do you express that anger when you no longer have that physical expression to kind of get it out? So I really had to really work a lot and on basically uh, healing that particular trauma if I wanted to transition into what I am today. 
and that's the guy that carries the briefcase, but I don't carry a briefcase or smartphone, but just a briefcase. <laughs> but um, so for me, it, it's always been the inner person drives the outer reality. And I'm a big believer because I've had success in a particular industry, meaning NBA basketball, growing up in an area that I grew up in where nobody had even had a dream or thought about that. You know, I was told I wasn't good enough. I was told a lot of different things. And then years later, I found out that probably wasn't good enough at that time, but the people who were telling me that they weren't good enough, you know, because they probably had dreams that they didn't overcome or they didn't capitalize on or weren't able to achieve. So a lot of my stuff has always been, you know, the mindset of acquiring a lot of information learning about people, being disciplined in that, and also giving people a platform where I can receive them as well and have an exchange. Um, Because when you're angry, you're blinded by that emotion, you know? And um, so for me, it's always been really, like I tell people, and we talk about business and different things like that, I always go back to people's childhood, childhoods, or what traumas they've been through, because you're going to see life through that lens. And sometimes we have to clean those goggles up in order to see life for what it is, not for what we expect it to be, you know, or what we think it is because of a feeling. So I try to always have a mind that controlling my thoughts, being positive, being transparent, being honest. And that's really uh, being honest about what I don't know, you know, and, and being vulnerable at that particular level. And and I think for, for me, that's been a great catalyst for relationship building. It's often said, at least for me and my experience, I walk into a room and tell pe- people what I don't know. And rather than telling people what I do know, you know, because I'm a big believer there are people in particular areas that know more than me. And I have to match and figure out if they want to share it with me, but also I have to give them a reason to share it with me. Because they're the one that acquired knowledge and paid the toll for that knowledge. I mean, I have to be respectful of that. So it's a whole combination of things on that mindset part because it just doesn't address the curiosity or the growth mindset or the perseverance or the determination. Sometimes you just have to be patient as well. And that doesn't mean being laid back or not doing anything. You can be actively patient, you know, and preparing for the opportunity. I think I'm one of those guys that how people know that I'm about to get involved with something is I get real quiet because that's that same thing that goes back to me taking three years to really play and understand and develop a skill set in basketball. I'm the same way in business. I get real quiet. It's almost like I isolate myself to learn things. And then I go out into the world and try to uh, participate. Is that a natural tendency or are you actively figured that out as your skill or secret weapon and yeah. now deploy it and use it. Yeah, it's it's a skill that I, I developed and it's a skill that I had to try to figure out how to organize and what best works for me. Everybody's different. I still enjoy playing basketball. I do it three days a week, but it's not running up and down. It's really with a skill person where I'm doing a lot of shooting, but that's my therapy, essentially, you know, Uh, People talk about meditation. When I'm on the basketball court, I'm present, you know, and that actually gives me uh, um, 
I guess, fuel for clarity and also allows me to receive and think about different ideas, strategy and different things like that. So for me, it's, it's, it's a skill that I've developed and, and organized, but I'm always in a constant evaluation of self, see what works, see what doesn't work. So I'm always evaluating, you know, I look at myself as a, as a, basically as a business plan, as an evolving document, you know what I mean? This may work in my thirties. This may not work in my forties. Yep. <laughs> this will work in my fifties. So I kind of evolve it, you know, over a period of time based upon where I'm at as a person. Was there anything specific that you did during that transition to get rid of the anger and open your mind up to something different? Therapy was one, you know, I got my therapist on speed dial, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and what I realized was at first I was always open to talking about it, but I needed some people that I needed to trust. And that's where the anger and the abandonment issue came in at is that I didn't trust. And I saw that manifesting in other relationships, not just business, but personal, you know, and how I looked at things. So for me, it was therapy was a good one. Mental health is a, is a great one and taking care of that. I don't meditate or anything like that. Um, my meditation is sport. I'm going to try to keep that going as long as I can physically possibly do it. But for me, it's been one of those things where therapy and being vulnerable and really also too, I think letting go of the, how do you say that? The, 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 the manly things that we're supposed to do like uh, and not do. It's like, not supposed to cry. We're not supposed to do all these different things. We're, we're supposed to hold things in. And, you know, once I retired from basketball, I really started to dive into the mental side of things and the emotional side of things. And the other reason I decided to do it was because I had um, uh, two kids, you know, and I had a son and he plays basketball as well and a daughter. And my goal was not to have them basically to learn from my mistakes. And I'm a big believer if I paid a toll, you know, I should share the information with somebody. And uh, if you decide you want to pay the toll, the same toll that I pay, go ahead, but you know, take the discount. <laughs> you know yep. what I mean? So, yep. so it was also transferring information to people, meaning my kids who were young enough that I know they were going to deal with certain things moving forward in life. So, that was a big inflection point for me is having children that I wanted to give them more than just money or car or education or whatever, but it's a transfer of knowledge, I think was a big, a big key for me. It's pretty interesting that you had trust issues, but now what you do is basically trust your money and your investing Correct. with jockeys that you pick and with people that are running the businesses that you are sponsoring and find interesting. Yeah. You know, it's, it's built over time. Me and my business partner, we've been together 26 years and we've been through a lot and we've created our own operating company. Um, there was a lot of trust on both sides of the table because I'll tell you the story of how we met was coach Patino was recruiting me and going through my recruiting process. I eventually became one of the top players in the country. And I was always a kid that played up, meaning if I was 14, I played seven, with the 17-year-olds. I was 15, I'm with the 19 and under guys. So 
I would always ask questions. And in growing up in New York City, I played for an organization called the New York City Gauchos. And in that particular era, in one year, we were probably just in the Catholic school league alone, we would probably have 20 division one players. Wow. In their senior class and junior class, sophomore class, and whatever it may be. So I always played it with some guys that had potential to not only be division one high end players, but also pros. And I would travel with them. We would go to Florida, Vegas, and play in tournaments. So as a youngest kid, I would ask questions. And one of my questions was, I started getting these recruiting letters. My mom didn't go to college. Dad was out of the house. He didn't go to college. And I'm like, man, and the recruiting letters I was getting, it wasn't like from SUNY Purchase <laughs> or Miami Day College. It was like my first letter was Michigan. Wow. Yeah, you know what I mean? So <laughs> Big so, time. Yeah, big time. So I'm like, so I'm going on these trips with these guys and they're rising seniors and we're going through the summertime and I would ask them questions. Oh, how are you making a college decision? Because I'm like, this is new. And some of the guys I'm asking, like, ah, oh, they're paying me money. I watched them as a kid. They're going to be on national TV. I'm like, it has to be a better way to do this. And so what I decided to do was let me flip it on his head. And let me start recruiting the schools that fit my criterias about what I want to do in the future. And oftentimes when schools will come in, they would talk to me about their tradition and their past. And I'm 17 years old as a senior because I graduated high school early. And I'm like, wait, please don't start your pitch with what they did in 1940, 1950. That's great. Can you tell me how you're going to help me carry a briefcase? Can you tell me how you're going to help me become a pro? And my criteria list was honesty and integrity. You've had to coach in the pros or have coached up that somebody that went to the pros. Yep. To me, that was a no brainer because if I wanted to be somewhere, yeah. let me go with the guy that got some experience track record goes back to that again. And so for me, I chose Coach Patino because he was honest. He coached the New York Knicks for a couple of years before he went to the University of Kentucky. So he knew what it looked like and knew what a player that I had to be in order to achieve being an NBA player. So for me, it was one of those things where I flipped the recruiting process and it dropped a lot of schools out of it. And I chose the University of Kentucky when they were on probation. And it was almost like a turnaround situation, just like some of the businesses we get in. You know, it's a turnaround situation. And he believed in me. And then that, that's how it all started. You know, so for me, I've always set the criteria for what I want and then figure out a strategy in order to achieve that. And it may not be through traditional means. So what gave you the confidence for Kentucky? Because that would be like saying, you know, I want to get into investment banking. So I'm going to go start and work for this investment banking firm that's about to go out of business. So going back to what I chatted with you earlier about what I figured out what was valuable as a player is minutes played. So as a kid being recruited, my first thing was I wanted to play. I didn't want to sit behind anybody. So University of Kentucky came calling huge tradition. But growing up in in, in New York City, I ain't heard nothing about Kentucky basketball. It was the furthest we got because it was a part of the ACC. 
was North Carolina because they were on CBS or whatever channel it was uh, playing on a weekend. So you see a little bit of that. But we were mostly Big East, Syracuse, St. John's and all those different places. But my mom told me that I couldn't go to school anywhere in New York City, which outlaw St. John's. She wanted me to see something different. And then my mom would also, as a young kid, take me around New York City, take me to museums, different places like that, always took me outside of Harlem. She wanted me to see something different. And a lot of people at that time in Harlem, a lot of them didn't venture out past Harlem. They didn't go downtown, you know? So my mom wanted me to see different things. And so for me, it was always choosing Kentucky was just based upon the opportunity. When people didn't saw a, a dire situation and were running away from it, I ran towards it. They only had three scholarships and Coach Patino wanted three New York City players because New York City at that time had the most talent. And I was the only one to choose. And people were like, well, you're making a, a mistake and all these different things. You're not going to be on TV your first year. You can't go to NCAA tournament your first year. And I had a lot of people second guessing that decision on my behalf and creating a lot of doubt, but I was confident. I even signed early with the University of Kentucky in November. And people are like, why are you going there? You know, they're not going to do this. Coach Patino's never, you know, turned out a pro, all these different things. I was like, well, he coached from the pros, coached the Knicks. A year later, fast forward a year later to my sophomore year, we played against Duke in the NCAA tournament. We lost to Christian Leighton and Duke when he hit the last second shots. Probably a lot of people consider that to probably be the, one of the best college games ever. That summer, went home just for a couple weeks, back to Harlem. 20, 30 people wearing the University of Kentucky hats. There you go. So it's like Redemption. Having the vision, the sight, and also not willing to go with the crowd, you know? And that's something that I... I I would say impacts my investing. When people are going towards the crowd, I kind of sit back and wait for the crowd to retreat. You know, uh, most people are chasing the shiny object. I'm I'm chasing the actual information and why things are what they are. So for me, the University of Kentucky, I took a chance on them, took a chance on Coach Patino. Uh, he took a chance on me and believed in me. And then after my junior year, after going to the Final Four, it was my turn to turn pro. That's how it all started. So when you look back at some of the investments that you've made, if I think about your basketball career, playing time and humility are two things that are probably some of your biggest insights. Mm -hmm. What on the business side has been your greatest insight just by asking the question or sitting back and watching a business? Great question again. I think ultimately, investing for me is not just about a return. It's about an education. Um, it's about relationships. It's about understanding process. Um, so for me, what has been the great return for me is give me a quick little story on that. So I left school as a junior and my mom always implanted me about education. And she always said, you know, you got to get your degree. I didn't want him getting a degree. I wanted him getting a doctorate, uh, you know, from University of Kentucky. I was one of the first athletes to get that honorary uh, doctorate. So for me, it was when I got involved in business, there was a part of me who thought that thought that I was unprepared because I didn't have the necessary education and requirements. 
of taking business courses. I was a communication major. The greatest thing that I learned about business was that I, by participating in understanding operations, understanding cash flow, all these different things, balance sheets, um, all these different things, I realized that I was educated enough by the experience. That's been my biggest takeaway. People often ask me, hey, why don't you go get your MBA? I tried it one day. And I went to the class, right? It's an orientation class. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm sitting here. I'm like, man, I know all this stuff. Just don't know the terms. You know, oh, that's all that means? I already had it. So to me, my biggest takeaway was the more and more I did hands-on, it garnered me my MBA but I had to graduate myself. I didn't need anybody else to graduate me. So I think for me, the investments and learning and all these different things allowed me to graduate myself in a non-traditional format where it's almost like you can't play in the NBA basketball if you haven't played middle school, high school, or college. There are probably the rare exception that that has happened, but you've had to play up into some particular place. And the day you get drafted is the day you graduate. Yep, It's almost like a ceremony if you watch the NBA draft. Put on the hat, it's yeah. a graduation. In the business world, I, had, I realized because I started as the owner, the founder of the company, that I had to graduate myself and find my own particular criteria that allowed me to graduate. So that was pretty much the biggest insight for me that I was capable. We've had some failures along the way. I mean, we were part of a plastic injecting molding company and we lost some money. And the first thing I realized was uh, when the bank contacted me and my um, business partner and we repaid the loan, all the money back, I realized that paying back the loan actually, and we could have walked away, was the best thing we ever did because that bank was going to be able down the road, which they consistently do, they were going to look at us a little bit differently because we honored our obligation. And that built a relationship that is stand the test of the time because they knew what type of business people we were, that if we were on the hook for something, we were going to pay it back. That for me was just an exercise in how to build a relationship with an institution, how your credibility and your track record will allow you not only to uh, to get favorable terms at times and good times, but also deal flow from the banks as well. Yep. So for me, that's been the biggest, biggest learner for me. And also too, uh, which I think a lot of people take for granted, how to truly build a relationship. And I just don't mean a transactional relationship, a personal relationship that may not transact. For me, I, I've built a lot of relationships just on being human and not have an expectation of doing business with somebody. If that comes, that comes. But I get a chance to get to know the individual. So I always start from a human place more than anything. So um, those are some of the things that I've learned from my investments. People, 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 people. I don't care how much technology we utilize. That will only be a tool to interact with people. Yep. So I think if, if, if I'm a young man or a young woman, 
getting involved in business, I would probably go the more touch feel approach and learn more about people, almost become a psychologist in some way. That's why I took communications. It was the ability to, Coach Patino asked me the question. He was like, you want to be in business, Carrie Debrique, why don't you take business courses? I said, well, I also have to have the ability to communicate exactly what I want, exactly what I know, and more importantly, communicate what I don't know. And that was critical for me. How do you communicate what you don't know or let someone on that you don't know something while still maintaining that business edge and not being pushed around or not have someone go around you? I don't really worry about it. I don't really, I don't worry. I mean, people sign NDAs left and right, but I don't yeah. think they really mean it. They don't really mean anything. I'm pretty secure in myself. Yeah. What you think of me or what you think of me? You know what I mean? <laughs> if I don't know, and that's holding you back from building a relationship, at least I was honest in telling you what I don't know. And, and what I found is that most people want to help more than anything, especially people who have been successful. And when they look back on their life, I don't think it's more or less about the money they have acquired. I think it's more about the people that they've helped and the legacy that they've created beyond and utilizing their success to touch other people. So I don't worry about people going around me. Best way I kind of look at it is I'll give you a rope. You choose to hang yourself. Yep. That's Abundance how- mindset. <laughs> Correct. You know what I mean? I, I say the same thing. I always think I'd rather share a little bit too much yep. and build a relationship because I think a lot of good things could come of it, regardless of what they may be. Correct. So one person that screws me, okay, that's one in a hundred. I don't have to be friends with them anymore. I don't have to see them anymore, but I would miss out on the 99 other opportunities to have a friend, have a business relationship, Correct. learn something, whatever it is. Correct. And that applies to all areas of life. It applies to the dating life, different things like that. I mean, we have to be vulnerable and in, in, in certain regards and obviously protect yourself in, in, in a lot of ways. But I'm unafraid to share an idea. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those guys, if I'm thinking about an idea, I'll share it and I'll share bits and pieces of it. I won't share the, the sauce of it, but also I'll share enough to see if it'll come back to me in a different format from that particular individual or from that particular group of people. I also share the idea to kind of have people poke holes in it Mm -hmm. and to really help me flush it out. And it's it's, it's almost like to me where people consider their idea or their business a child. If we think about raising a child, it's a village that raises it. You know, parents are only with their children a certain amount of time throughout the day, especially if they go to school. You know, they're in school <laughs> and you're at work. So, and then they sleep. How yep. much time do you really spend? You know what I mean? When you look at it, it's more of a protective nature of, of the anything when you think about my baby. But your baby is actually being raised by its environment, the environments that go to school, its peers. So why wouldn't that be the same with your idea in a lot of ways, you know? And what I get is when I share an idea with people, I have a way of sharing it with them, which allows them to buy in if it's a good one and allows them to take ownership if they're helping me execute it. And what I found from my uh, athletic background is people want to participate and they want to have ownership and they, and they want to be acknowledged. Some people like to get kicked in the butt. Other people like to get cheered. It's a form of acknowledgement. You know what I mean? So 
being a part of teams and building teams and, and understanding the psychology of people and what they actually want, as long as they're honest with their agenda, is oftentimes of how I go about uplifting an idea. And if somebody goes behind my back or runs with it, let's see how far they take it. You know what I mean? You've lived through a few business cycles where you've had businesses. Mm-hmm. What have you learned from a certain business cycle that you wrote down and you're like, I'm never doing this again. I'm going to know for the next time. That plastic injecting molding business was an interesting one. And we were a tier one supplier to Toyota, Ford. We did all the cup holders and the hubcaps. It sounds like a home run. Yeah. (laughs) Until 2008 hit. And when, what I also learned was the further and further you are away from the source, the more likely you're going to be cut when times are bad. So what I mean by that is we were getting work from, we were a minority supplier company. So we were getting work from another company passing down to us. But when hard times hit, they reduced what they passed down to us. But we still had to, you know, we still had equipment, tooling, molding, and all these different things, a capital intensive business. And what I learned was, and that part of it was probably, even though it was in the automobile space, if we don't have somebody in our organization that can take over the deal, probably the wrong industry and deal for us. We have to have somebody within our parent company that understands that deal and that is an expert. Think of almost like a private equity firm that yep. has CEOs on deck. Yeah. That's how we look at it. And that's a big lesson that we figured out what we're good at and what we're not good at. What we're good at is not businesses that require that much capital and the margins are thin. We got into that business because we were on the retail side of the car business. And it was it was an automotive deal. So we thought, oh, we're we're already a Toyota dealer. Maybe we can get on the other Toyota side of manufacturing side of things, which we still involved in, but we're involved in a different way. The different way is now is that we supply uniforms to Toyota on the manuf- to all their manufacturing plants. So we probably do north of 40,000 uniforms a That's year. That's direct. Yes, direct. And also it's not that more capital intensive. You know what I mean? We're not tooling the plant. We're not doing all these things. We're not doing all those different things. So for me, it's always been the further and further, too big to fail would be a great thing. If you're a smaller bank, you're going to be hurting. If you're a bigger bank, you have different ways of applying the, the ointment to heal. Yes. You know what I mean? So that's what I learned. So I've always looked at size. How big can we grow? How what is our financing? How much does the, uh, well, we're all impacted by interest rates and and consumer behavior. But I also learned that we need to be with best in class. Toyota's best in class. Lexus is best in class. Papa John's better pizza, <laughs> you know, better ingredients, Papa John's, you know what I mean? It's on, a, on the higher end of the pizza side of things, you know, in that particular market. So that that's what I learned is that you got to play with the best. You can't be mediocre. So I want to talk about the car business for a yeah. little bit. Yeah. You were telling me a story a couple months ago about a friend of yours that bought a dealership, super high-end car, and he came to you after a few months. He's like, hey, 
we're not selling any cars. I'm like, how is this possible? It's a popular car. Yeah. And maybe you can use that story to kind of intro how you've been able to find success in the car business and, and how that business works. But, you know, we got involved in the car business in 1995, I believe. It was a small Ford store in Corbin, Kentucky. Back to Kentucky. Yep. And I've often said that failure is my best teacher. I don't know if I learn a lot from success as much as I learn how to handle success. You know, we had an issue where we were in a small town in Kentucky. We brought a guy from the Northeast to run it. And culturally, it just wasn't a good fit, you know, and how he dealt with employees, the culture of Kentucky, the culture of the customer in that particular area. And so what I found was we were failing at that. I was playing at the time. This is my second year, I think, second or third year in the pros, second year in the pros. My business partner called me and he was like, hey, we're struggling here. And he's like, uh, I think we're going to have to sell the store. We wound up selling it. And then he asked me a critical question. He said, do you want to stay in the car business? I said, yeah, let's double down. He was like, wow, that's not the response that I was looking for. And he said, why? I said, well, when we first came up with this thesis of what we're looking to invest in, we stayed with the basics, transportation, food, and housing. Now, the, I mean, these are things that people need. Now, they're derivatives of all, of, you know, a big space of all of those. So I said, if we're going to be in it, let's go find the best. And then he came back to me with a Toyota dealership and Lexus store and Lexington, Kentucky, and also Nicholasville, Kentucky. And we bought into an operator who was looking to sell a small portion of it. We got to know Toyota. And over a period of time, we bought the controlling interest and bought them out completely. And that's how we developed a um, relationship with Toyota. And it took us about seven years to get approved as a dealer. Yeah. And when you find organizations that it's that difficult to get into, and that's when I want to stay, you know, because they're really vetting it and they understand it and different things like that. And to get back to the story, I was in the locker room one day and, you know, I'm in a car business and I'm in Outback. And, and this is one of the reasons why I was like, you know what? It's probably time to leave. I had a friend of mine come up to me and I, I, I pitched him. He was like, Jamal, I want to do what you're doing. A lot of people didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> except some of my teammates. And I said, hey, man, you, you want to get involved with Outback? He was like, yeah, I would love to. He said, let me talk to my wife first and everything like that. He said, Jamal, how, how? I said, well, you know, one unit could be about 100 grand or something. Like, you don't have to really spend a lot of money on it. And he came back the next day. I was like, ah, you know, I don't think I'm going to do that. Oh, okay, cool. You know, whatever you ask me. But I want to ask you, can you get a car for me? Uh, yeah, sure. What kind of car you want? I said, I'm in. In the Lexus and Toyota, we had Nissan at the time and some other stores. He's like, I want to navigate. I was like, I don't sell navigators. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, can you get one for me? I said, I'm sure. He said, also, I want to put in, my wife wants to buy this. I want to buy this for my wife. And she wants to put in, I want to put in a whole sound system and all that. And I said, so you're telling me you're looking to spend about 120 grand on this car? He's like, yeah, I think I'm going to pull the trigger. I said, so let me get this straight. <laughs> you want to buy a depreciating asset for your wife, put all the bells and whistles in it for 120 grand or so, but you won't want to do an Outback deal for 100 grand? 
that's when I decided that this mentality is not going to work for me moving forward. And that's when I started to get bored in the locker room. That's when I left. So there's a lot of stories like that where, you know, people start to look at the shiny object rather than appreciating the asset, you know, or something that has cash flow attached to it, dividend attached to it. <laughs> you couldn't drive an Outback store, but you could drive a, a navigator. But, you know, for me, it's always been about the long game rather than the short game. And to me, it's always been about how do you continue to evolve as a person and move forward with knowledge rather than getting stuck? Because, you know, the NBA, there are not going to be any 50 year olds that are playing in the NBA. I don't think that's ever going to happen. No. You know, LeBron James will probably be the first one that plays an extended period of time above his in his 40s, such as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar did and probably a couple other players, but not at a high level. But you're just starting life the end of the day you know so for me it's always been the car business has always been fun i say that's where i got my most business education is in the car business because how does that of, business work so there are multiple multiple ways to make money and there's also multiple ways to lose money <laughs> so you know you have your fni department you have your marketing you have your used cars your new cars just to name a, a, a few departments parts service all these different things that's where I learned all facets of business because it's a very interesting business because you have to deal with not only the OEM, meaning Toyota, Lexus, you have to deal with financing the customers, different makes and different models, what they have coming out that attracts customers. Then you have to deal with local marketing and national marketing. Know when to go dark in your local marketing because national is taking over. That was one of the areas that you know, of understanding operation, understanding working capital, different things like that, understanding real estate development and building a new store. Uh, what's the rent factor? Uh, all these different things. And that to me has been the, the, the part that has really allowed me to grow as a business person is really understanding that business and being with the, the best in class in Toyota and how they break down financial statements. That's where I really learned business, really learned it. You know, capitalization, because you're a landlord, you're, you're all these different components. That's where I became that versatile player. Just like my NBA career, or basketball career, that's where I became a versatile player, where I touched a lot of different things in business, where in certain businesses, you might only touch one area, you may only touch the product, but you may be involved in marketing, but in the car business, that's day to day, that's month to month. Uh, how many cars you sell, forecasting, all those different things, general manager, uh, CEO, all these different things that come into play. And you're also dealing with people and pay plans as well. And it's an interesting business, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a business that I enjoy. It's a business that whatever people think about electric vehicles or whatever it is, I don't think that business is going away. There are certain OEMs such as Ford who are probably going to go to an agency model down the road, just like they did in Europe, where the, the dealer only gets a set amount. So that'll eliminate some dealers. But what people fail to re realize is that if you go back through the history of time, if you go back to the automobile dealer, the automobile dealer was probably the center of the community. Everybody came to the automobile dealer to sponsor something, charitable yeah. stuff, start a job or, or to be a car salesman, 
or, or to be a porter, whatever it is, the automobile dealer usually was the uh, the center of the community because that guy was probably one of the wealthier guys in the community amongst um, other other industries and other businesses. But that was probably the more prominent one yep. because that had the signature of that family's name. On yep. It, you know, and unfortunately, with agency models and different things like that and technology disrupting, I think that could end. And but it will bring some of the bigger boys and a lot of private equity money, which you've already seen in the car business, which hasn't been in in the past into the fold. And that will create a different appetite and expectation from not only the OEM, but also customer service. I mean, you know how private equity comes into business more about their return and efficiencies and how they can extract more value and cash out of the business, not necessarily helping the business grow and be a part of the community. That's not really their um, forte or appetite. How do you think about exiting a business when that business is going through some sort of a change or transition like the car business? Do you start to look to sell or do you say, hey, I need to pivot. I need to align with this person. What do you Um, think about in those times? I think for us, um, uh, me and my business partner and myself, I look at those businesses as probably we're probably not going to sell those. Are, if it comes down to a sale, I don't think any of my kids are going to, my, my business partner has two kids. Uh, I don't think they're going to be involved in automobile business. They'll be a, bar, a, a part of the parent company and monitoring those businesses. But to me, the way I look at the car, automobile business is operations and there's the real estate. And we own, on all our stores, we own the real estate as well not a bad extra strategy for the kids. You know what I mean? If we decide to sell the operations, I think we're probably more or less now doubling down in the automobile industry and looking to grow and acquire. We just acquired a store in uh, North Florida, in Lake City, Florida, Toyota store. So we're looking to acquire more stores. And the reason we are looking to do that is because I think there's a big opportunity in the Southeast in some of these markets, such as Tennessee, where people are moving to outside of California and all these different places that you can gain more uh, users and more cars and operations and more parts and service. And then also the opportunity lies with some of these dealers who are older in these communities, what I talked about, they were pillar communities for a long time and they don't really have a great succession planning, meaning that their kids are not involved Usually what happens if you have a first generation, second generation um, spends it all. And then a third one generation, if it's still there, they'll try to build it back up, you know. But what I found is the opportunity where you have an aging dealer body, especially with Toyota and all all other car brands and all other businesses. But those are the more prominent ones where the deal flow not only comes from brokers, but also comes from the OEM because they're the ones that bless the buy sell. Yep. So to me, that's where the opportunity lies. And based upon my age, I just turned 50 this year and my business partner, he's 60. So he's not looking to go anywhere. So, and we enjoy a great lifestyle. So, and we enjoy the people that we work with and, and the employees that we support. We probably have north of 2000 employees on the car side of things. So for us, it's a responsibility. And then also it's a lot of fun too. 
I'm not a guy that's going to be able to tell you what a V8 or a V12 is. I got a great understanding of what that is. I'm not going under the hood, but I know what a, you know what a car can sell for and all these different things where they transact that, what we pay for them and pay plans and all those different things. I really enjoy that business. So I don't think we're looking to sell any near term. And, and I don't, we don't necessarily look at market headwinds as an opportunity to sell because I think if you're determining it based upon that, you might miss a wave or, or you know what i mean so i don't necessarily dictate it from outside factors this is just a matter of if we're selling a store it's probably to take money off the table to go buy bigger stores not necessarily to go cash out and and live on a beach or anything like that you know what i mean my appetite for business and learning is just uh too strong for that I, i'll get bored real quickly put me on a beach for 24 hours and I'm like thinking of the next thing to do, <laughs> you know? So you're in hospitality, mm-hmm. you're in waste management mm-hmm. and you're also in basically food service restaurants. Yep. Yeah. Papa John's. How hard has it been recently or from the start of the investment investment to deal with these people centric service centric mm-hmm. businesses versus some of your other investments? So the people part, that's a great one. We've had to, that's a business that probably transacts a little bit more on where labor is going in certain markets. So we've, we were at like, I think 75 to 80 stores at one point. I think now we're down to 25. COVID impacted the pizza business. I would say the best that, I mean, it's rocket fuel. Yeah, because what happened in COVID with a lot, and we're not national. We're we were in ten different states at one point, and what we learned about with COVID was COVID because pizza people were already tuned into delivery. They would rather accept delivery of pizza, but then you had Uber Eats and all these different things where you get other items, and obviously delivery was was a, a prominent in different places. But pizza in general, people accepted delivery. Yeah. You know what I mean? It wasn't foreign to them, you know? So pizza sales rose. And that's something that I learned by being involved in Papa John's and the pizza business over the past 20 years. Depending upon your size, you can dictate, not dictate, you can understand the pulse of the country by spending habits. So what I used to do was look at Outback and see how their sales were going if they were increasing or decreasing and then look at Papa John's to see what our revenue was doing. So it was almost like if people were going out more, Papa John's sales would drop. If people stayed home more, sales would escalate. So that's how I can tell if people were saving money or spending money, just my own little, you know, little, little economic thing. You know what I mean? So I can tell if, cause usually a pizza a mom could buy that for the kids and they can eat that 20 bucks or whatever it may be, as opposed to going to a grocery store, you know, or opposed to taking their family out. So that's one business that probably labor, in my opinion, will impact or the cost of labor. And also not just the cost of labor, it's also an entry job. Nobody's going to they a career at Papa John's unless they get up to the manager level. Right. But that's a transition job to something else. So for me, that's why I started to look at and something that we did internally to cut down on labor. Our biggest thing was 
things that I always looked at in the food business is food costs and labor. Yep. That's it. And for us, we had drivers as well. So we had to look at millage. And so I'm a big believer in, in some of the states, what we did was because we were large enough in certain states, we actually did marketing campaigns locally to drive people to the store to pick up their pizza. That cut down on some of that labor. We can't really control food costs or anything like that. Right. You know, it's, it is what it is, but we can control labor and different things like that and how many people we have inside the store. And that's why I like Papa John's and the small footprint. You have a labor, but you don't need a lot of labor. And then how I've also looked at it, not for Papa John's, but for other concepts in the food space, meaning coffee is the one I'm looking at right now, is how do you make the customer experience better and more efficient? And then how do you automate the back of the house? Because in some of these job markets, I mean, it's hard. You've got people at McDonald's. I saw a sign up the other day. It's like, yep. you know, we pay $17 plus healthcare and nobody's going for those jobs, you know? So how do you still make your business efficient more to the bottom line? I think automation is clearly going to be the next wave and in artificial intelligence clearly going to be the next wave in the food business to disrupt that. And then the other part of it is, is that, you know, you got these third party services like DoorDash and Uber Eats. They take a big amount if you go through their platform for delivery and different things like that. So, you know, that's more in the food business where I'm looking at different areas to bring technology to on the back of the house in order to be more efficient. But my idea is not also just to do it. It's also to own the intellectual property and partner with somebody on that, which I've done now in an investment that I made. But I think automation and I, but I think people at the end of the day, there's the other side of the coin where you're taking away jobs. I don't think it'll be that you're taking away jobs. Yes, some jobs will go away. I think the people who are much more entrepreneurial in their uh, presentation of themselves, I think the salespeople will come back and how you deliver the experience along with the tool of technology. So the mundane task of putting together sauce on a, a, a robot to do that. Yep, 100%. But the interaction with the individual is going to require much more of a person to be more communicative, educated on a product, and it's going to be more experience driven, even at your stores at Papa John's. Because people are going to spend their money where they feel like they're being acknowledged and they're being taken care of, regardless if it's white tablecloth or your your local 7-Eleven. I want to understand how, with all these diverse businesses, you keep a pulse on them. Like, What dashboards or what information are you looking at and how often are you looking at that? Every day. Every day. We, I get daily reports on the car business, end-of-day sales, different things like that, numbers, um, parts, service, and then we meet our forecast every day. Papa John's, I don't spend as much time on. I allocate my time based upon how much capital I have in it. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> you know what I mean? so, so we have a lot of capital in Papa John's, but compared to the car business, I spend most of my time there. I spend a lot of time right now on um, waste management. My, we have a business called Anytime Waste in Louisville, Kentucky. We have 30 trucks. So we bought that probably about three years ago. We went through a learning process and uh, um, turned that business around. So we're 
been cash flow positive for probably about the last eight to nine months. Wow. What's we, the biggest opportunity in that business? I think it's going to be a roll-up strategy of, of haulers of like size, meaning callers of we're probably a $30 million top line business. You've already seen private equity get into that business. They love the cash flow. They love the stability of it. I think of a hauling company and then acquiring other hauling companies and then also acquiring transfer stations that source the trash. And eventually, depending upon where regulation goes with landfills, that's the really the, the, the meal ticket from Waste Management with Public Services. But we also have another business in the waste business called Wasteology, which we're a minority shareholder in that, pretty significant minority shareholder in that, but that's a national brokerage company. So basically what she does in her business is it's a woman-owned business with probably 80 million in top-line revenue on that. She knows all the haulers. So she can consolidate your bill if you have 150 locations. She consolidates, rather you have 150 150 bills, she consolidates it and creates savings. So she is actually, we bought into those businesses and we're majority older of the waste business, the hauling company, but she's actually our recon team to understand different markets. And she's also our back office when we go buy a business because it's, She's basically a, a a vendor. She's the back office. So uh, we save about 15% on just the uh, having her as the back office. So the strategy that I'm looking at is going to these mom and pops hauling companies in the Southeast, rolling them up, and then eventually buy transfer stations where you can control at least frontline and secondary line. And then obviously waste management, they're the you take it to a landfill or another Republic service, their landfill and potentially get in the landfill business. But if we don't and we stay with just transfer station to hauling companies, your exit would be to waste management or Republic services. So how's that work? Like, how do you break into a business where waste management is also in the business, but then they control where you have to take the trash? Like, couldn't they just jack up their prices when you dump the stuff, which of course, would yeah. force them to become yeah. a hauler? Yeah, but then you have competitors in that landfill business so waste management may have another competitor so they got to kind of balance it out you know the cost of uh, i can't recite the number on what is it cost waste management in the landfill six dollars or something like that per tonnage or something but they charge 35 or something like right. that so i mean it's good gross margin so if i'm waste management or any landfill my customer really is the hauling company so my idea is to sit there and say, oh, buy more hauling company, control the area in the market. And if I can drop more tonnage in your landfill, now we can talk about partnership and how we can discount. I see. So the it, business is the landfill business. Correct. It the is hauling the, is just how you get it there. How you get it there. Yeah. The transfer is how you sort it out and different things like that. But all through that particular chain, the way I've always looked at it. And when I got in that business and actually how I got into that business was uh, me and my business partner, we were approached by the bank. We got a struggling hauling company, but you guys want to take a look at it. So there goes the relationship again. <laughs> you know, all so, comes full circle. Correct. Correct. Deal flow. You know, I want to bring it home with when a deal like that comes, what is your underwriting process? How do you underwrite a small business? How do you evaluate a small business? What do you do? What are the first five things that you do? And then how do you know that you're not getting taken advantage of and you know yeah. what it is that you're buying? So, first of all, 
a lot of people on, on my team are heavy in finance. I'm probably the only guy that doesn't have a finance degree. But, you know, I've stayed a couple of holiday, holiday in, so, you know, I could be a doctor, <laughs> you know what I mean? But because I'm around people, and yep. that's what we talk about. So just by being in their presence, pick up a lot of things. So we under, underwrite that from a, a standpoint of, you know, <laughs> it's asset heavy, something that we weren't choosing to get involved in. The business was losing money. The first thing we looked at was, do we have somebody in our organization that we can put into the company? And the first order of business was not necessarily operations. It was the CFO to get control of those books and have a greater understanding yep. of how things are documented, how things are inputted or whatever, all those different things. Second order of business was as we sold our Papa John's store, our CEO of Papa John's, wonderful operator, we brought him over to learn that business. So that was that three-year window that we gave ourselves to really understand it and take over. And as we took over the books and started understanding it that way, we started to play with it a little bit. And then my business partner called me and he was like, hey, hey, I said, you know, I like this business. He asked me, why did I like it? I said, well, I think it fits my personality for where I'm at now. And he's like, what do you mean? So it's a place where you can make a lot of money and nobody would know who you are. Mm-hmm. And he said, wow, okay. And I said, that's where I'm at right now because I spent so much time in the public view of things. I'm a guy that always, since I was a little kid, wanted to be behind the scenes. And then we went to the lady at Wasteology and, and then we started to understand her business. And then we saw the, the fit and how that can be one of our sister businesses and how it can make us more efficient. So it's, it's a process of people that we have on our bench that we can deploy into the business. And then you go from there. You know How do you mean? know if you're paying the good price? We've overpaid for stuff. I mean, I don't. The way I look at it is if it's if we're overpaying for it, if it's one more turn. OK, so what? Price to us matters. Put it like this. When we got into the car business with Toyota in Lexington, Kentucky, we paid, I think it was 30 million at the time. People thought we were crazy. Oh, y'all overpaid, way overpaid for that. <laughs> down the road, look down the road, four or five years. Wow, you guys were smart. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the attitude. And I run into this quite a bit when people talk about overpaying. And I, I get it. I understand it's based upon um, do you have the ability to finance it? What's your threshold in all these different things? But it's very similar when I talk to a lot of people about the sports business and NBA teams. There's a lot of individuals that had opportunities back in the early 90s to buy an NBA team. And they were like, oh, that's $150 million. <laughs> but fast forward, <laughs> yeah. it's trading now at $3 billion. Eh, really? Are you really overpaying? You know, because the market evolves, you know what I mean? And different things like that. So... Obviously, we're not going to overpay way and way and beyond and different things like that, but we will, uh, you know, pay market or a little bit above market to secure a deal or to make it move quickly or to keep other people out of it. But I think ultimately what you pay for something for today, your mindset has to be has to look a little bit differently because of appreciation and every all the value that's created within. And then also the way we kind of look at things is. It's not necessarily about price. It's about opportunity. And what I mean by that is how we grow our business is 
we gather a lot of people and create a deep bench. And we spend a lot of money in training and, and other people's goals and different things like that. So when you develop a deep bench, you have to have a house for them to play in. And that's where what triggers us to buy, you know, because why lose that talent to somebody else that you've already invested in when you can place them in an opportunity where they were sitting as a general sales manager in one store, but they want to, they have desires and have gone to general manager school. If they don't see opportunities within your organization and you've invested five to six years in them and you lose them to a competitor, why not find that opportunity for them to thrive? That's a key insight. We were actually interviewing someone the other day and they weren't right for the job, but the president of my hotel management company came to me and said, God, I'd love to have this guy on my bench Yeah, yeah. for this or that. Or when we get a new hotel, like this is yeah. a great guy. And I'm like, all right, think about it and see if it works in the PNL and see if we have enough stuff for him to do now. But that is critical because oftentimes when you have something, you don't have the person to run it. Correct. Correct. And you're searching for somebody to run it that may not be a good fit. And you're under undue stress to make a decision because you have a timeline on closing yep. something. And that person may not be the right person because they don't. It's actually a, worse than overpaying for it. Correct. Yeah. And they don't understand your culture, Yep. you know, and how you do business. So I look at it based upon people at the end of the day. If I'm investing in something, it's track record, typical things there. But also if people come to me and they want to be in a car business and they come from different areas, you know, it's easy to go find a, a, a coach that's coached another team. It's also something to be said about bringing up an assistant coach through your culture and having them becoming a head coach. Because you don't have to teach them what your culture is. They've, they've been grown up in it, you know, so that's how I look at it. So price is important. We understand where our sweet spots are at and, and what we're looking at. That's why we love secondary markets in the Toyota business and the waste management business Southeast. You know, uh, we understand that business to a degree where we're looking at opportunities, but we're following the same playbook of let's go to the OEM, the OEM and the waste business, even though you're independent hauler in my head, it's not an OEM, but it's a, the big gorilla in the room would be waste management or Republic services. Where are they at? What are they looking at? People. Do you have enough people to go buy another hauling company that could be an operating officer? What's that infrastructure? And also the other thing that I look at is you create this infrastructure that you pay for with your first two stores. Now we have to go buy to spread that infrastructure cost throughout six or seven stores. Makes it a little bit more palatable. Yep. You know what I mean? So that that's how I look at it. I want to bring it home talking about professional sports teams. Mm -hmm. Like recently, those valuations have skyrocketed and it still feels like to me, people have so much money, they have nothing to do with it. And that helps <laughs> fuel yeah. part of that growth. Do you think there's any niche, interesting sports teams or sports businesses to acquire? Or is that pretty inflated right now? Yo, who, who was the... Uh Everybody thought Steve Ballmer, when he bought the Clippers for $2 billion, like he was nuts. He reset the market. Yep. But he wasn't nuts. <laughs> you know? No. Uh, what did the Washington Commanders win for $6 billion, Josh Harris and those guys? To me, I think the sports in the... Um, obviously, MLS has gained a lot of traction, us being down here in Florida with Messi and 
and the group that they have down here. Still a little bit concerned about U.S. domestic soccer and how kids play it. I think kids play soccer at a youth age, but they don't follow through through high school and college. It's more of a camaraderie thing when they're young. Same with baseball, t-ball, and all those different things. I personally think that with cord cutting on the cable side, makes sports team more valuable because it's live content. And then you add in the betting part of it and you get more revenue that way and get more eyeballs that way. I think that's where the valuations are, have been inflated because of the new revenue streams, especially in, in basketball. Betting hasn't been a part of it. Um, now that's a part of it. Um, getting the, the, the jersey patch and advertising on the front of your jersey is another revenue stream your local markets and your local television and radio deals, if you're in the top 10 markets, those are huge dollars. Advertising, all these different things. I think sports and also the customer experience in arena and and how you produce the the games and how people see it from a television standpoint. And then and now has to be year round. It just can't be seasonal. You know, that's why the NBA has done a great job and marketing faces and their stars, not necessarily teams, because in the off season, the individual drives the NBA because of, of what's going to be traded. They don't like this. They don't like that. It becomes a soap opera. And then everybody's watching and talking about it. So in my opinion, I mean, I think in different markets, you could be overpaying, but then you have stadium deals, different things like that, that entice you. I look at sports as an anchor to a real estate development project. That's how I look at it, into an entertainment and a food and beverage concept. I mean, I think sports alone in these particular stadiums without all the stuff around it struggles. But if, let's say the Miami Heat, there's a lot of people that I get driven down to uh, Miami because of the Heat Arena, but I don't think the Miami down... Miami over there in that downtown area has never really truly captured that area as a food and beverage place. It's been more of a parking lot, parking lot, and also dedicated to the, uh, to the, to the cruise ship business. Yep. So I think when you're looking at sports facilities and sports teams, you have to look at it as a whole rather than just as an individual part that's why stadiums are so important and what they build around the stadiums. I love what the dolphins have done. That's the most impressive thing done by a real estate guy where it's basically a entertainment complex. Dolphins are one of their acts, performers, F1 tennis, correct. And they could just keep adding on and they've figured out the entertainment factor. Like when you have, when you go underneath, they have the private section, great experience. It's unbelievable. Correct. And and also too, I think in uh, South Florida and especially Miami after COVID and everything that has moved down here from financial institutions, I think the sports team have to do a better job of figuring out how to tap into that and what's of value to them. It may not be signage, you know, or anything like that. It may be how do you create different things for my clients to have a great experience. Fireside chats and utilizing the stadium or the team for that part of it as a form of marketing arm for them. 
I think that has to change, you know, your traditional car ads and all these different things. But then you have to look at, take a look at the mix of businesses around here, hedge funds, different, they don't need an ad. No. You know what I mean? They need places where they can say that they, they have exclusive access. Yep. That becomes something unique and, and, and something that you can sell. So for me, sports teams are valuable in certain markets. If you got a sweet arena deal, if you own the land or you got favorable lease terms that you control it for a long period of time in certain markets. I do think the NBA, in my opinion, probably has the best growth internationally because it's become such a global game. To me, basketball and soccer, which they call football internationally, are the two sports that are for the common man. What I mean by that is when you start playing soccer or basketball, your first thing you do is dribble. You don't need a court. You don't need other people. You can dribble with your hands, soccer with your feet. Then you can play amongst and make it makeshift, use a garbage can or whatever it is. So the entry is different. And then you build into skill set and all these different things if you want to play and then your team and all these different things and who you follow, your tradition and all these different things or your favorite player. Football to me is going to be, I think there's much more white space globally for NBA basketball and basketball in general um, in continents of Africa, which the NBA is on, China, obviously India is another big one. I'm still questionable on MLS. Valuations are lower. But then you got to look at TV rights. ESPN is struggling. They're going to go a la carte or trying to be sold to somebody else. Streaming platforms. Apple's involved with the MLS, but Messi had to make an impact to come over here. It wasn't, I don't know what the numbers were, but nobody was screaming about, <laughs> about soccer, you know, especially down here in Florida, and we, which you would think yep. people would be screaming about it. But now they are. Now they are. You know what I mean? South Florida is all about stars yeah. at the end of the day. That's right. And what I think people have figured out in South Florida is, and just like in other areas where, you know, it may not be the only attraction as other things to do, you can't have a star that's at the end of his career, which most people would, oh, you know, let, let's just go uh, uh, get Pele at the end of his career where he has nothing to show, right. but he's iconic. You come see him, but you need stars that actually can uh, deliver and create those memories and moments. And so for me, if you got, I, I just personally think the valuations have gotten to a point where NBA basketball and even um, professional football, that I think institutions are going to have to be involved at some point. And I think that shifts the dynamic a little bit on what's expected, how they're going to go about things. I mean, uh, you're going to have to trickle down effect if you have intr- institutions. They're losing money in one area. They're probably not going to spend. You can lose personality too. Correct. Correct. Because the owner has a personality, whether you like them or not. Correct. There's a personality associated with the team. And it's and it's something that uh, I think it's also too being a, a owner of a sports team is also still has that aspirational ego attached to it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Ego fuels the world. <laughs> Correct. So I'm in between, I think on certain sports, uh, looking at global growth, basketball, football is a little bit tough for me because uh, head injuries. And then also you that's more team related unless you're the quarterback. You know, you won't know who to, unless he's a, I couldn't tell you if a football player walked in here, if it wasn't Tunga Vailoa, yeah. you know, I, cause I could see his face. 
but everybody else, you don't see their face. So, and um, I don't want to get canceled here, but football, like I've taken my son to football games. They are long. Yeah. They, when you watch them live, it is very long. And we went to a baseball game recently and they did this new thing where like baseball games are quick. Like we were out of that thing in like two hours. Yeah. And it was great. So baseball to me is one of those sports where to me, that's more like you can really sit and talk to the person you came to the game with. Correct. Football for me, and especially I went to, I I love the Dolphins games. I I go to Dolphins. I'm a season ticket holder with Dolphins and the Heat as well. The only sporting event that I had trouble with was college football playoffs. And they had it in Miami. I think it was the Orange Bowl or whatever it was. That game took four hours. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at like, why is this thing taking four hours? Because you got national commercials and yep. all these different things yep. and everybody has to make money. But I think sports are going to be a, continue to be a part of our life in a big way. You're right. The value, it's overvalued, but it's just depending on who can write that check. And based upon rules now, I mean, I know NFL and NBA, I think if you have more, the lead owner has to write a 30% of the purchase price check. You start getting up to the $6 billion, how many people um, have the ability to write that check? Not Very many. few. Okay. And if they're probably up at that thing, at, at that level, if they're not in it already, they're probably not going to get in it. So I asked all the guests on the podcast the same closing question. And I know you're away recently, so I'm curious yeah. to hear your answer. But what is your favorite hotel? Ooh, my favorite hotel that I travel with, and I actually... If they don't have a hotel in that area, I may give second thoughts about going. I love the Four Seasons. I love the Four Seasons. I haven't tried them on yet. I think I stayed there one time, but I haven't completely done that. It's, it's a very interesting. I like. I love the Four Seasons because of the service uh, that they provide, the attention to detail. Now that they have the connectivity that you can use through your app and have a chat box and, and talk to people. I love that feature. I love the feature also too of, and I think hotels are getting to the point where, you know, keyless entry, being able to check in before one o'clock or three, whatever the thing is. But one of the things of me, uh, actually, when I got drafted by the Dallas Mavericks, I lived in Dallas in Los Colinas and there was a Four Seasons Hotel, beautiful property. That's where I actually, it was the Ritz-Carlton though. We actually sent some of our general managers to the Ritz-Carlton in uh, Boston because they had a school there where they would teach hospitality. And one thing that me and my business partner recognized was that when we talk about service, we may have a different definition of what service actually is because we've experienced it but other people may have no idea mm-hmm. on what service. What's your definition of service? Maybe completely different. So we had to wash our goggles off and say, what's your definition of service to a general manager who's never been outside of Kentucky? He, he had no idea. We took him to that risk office. He was blown away. Oh, they opened the doors. Wow. Oh, this is wow. Never experienced it. So we had to get our, we had to get aligned on that part of it. And that really helped our business because of the hospitality nature, attention to, um, like you said, the P&L, all the things that go on in a hotel, because 
at the end of the day, it's a nightly business. It's heads in the bed. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's heads in the we bed. Sell the rooms every night. Correct. Correct. And then you start to get an understanding of operations. And that's why I've always loved limited service and extended stay product <laughs> in the right market. <laughs> we made money on both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so you can make money on full service, but limited services is a good business. It's a good business. And, and that's what I, uh, I, I like the model. Uh, full service, depending on where you're at and the uh, the meeting rooms and all that stuff in the sales force, you really need the right management manager, oh, yeah. you know, uh, that really knows what they're doing. So I love the Four Seasons. What's your I, favorite one? I love the one in uh, the Big Island in Kona. I love that one. I, I, I like resort style properties because I'm, I'm the type of guy that as much as I like going outside the resort, there's a reason why I chose a resort. You yeah. know what I mean? 100%. <laughs> you know? I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, so I like that. Um, what's the other one I recently went to was a uh, No Bearish property in Cabo, Esperanza. Oh, yeah. That's a nice one. They do a fabulous job. And, I'm, and, and, and you know, at the end of the day, it's all about people and, and your reception, how they receive you. And I, I like it. I, I like the Four Seasons. We're actually doing a trip and, January and doing that Four Seasons uh, plane experience. So I'm interested to see how that goes. But I mean, it's... Uh, I think you're going to love it. My parents have done it with Amon. They've done it three different times. Really? And it's amazing. Really? Because you go to places that would be very hard to access if you didn't have your own plane. Yeah. And the whole thing is seamless. I tell you what, Jake, it's been... Even the the the... Chip is this trip is not until January, but I mean they've been touching base since June. Really? Yeah. Like, what are some of your needs? What is it? You got to get a physical. All these different things. You know what I mean? I'm like, wow. You know what I mean? They travel with a doctor on, on, on yep. premises with you and stuff like that. So I'm looking forward to that. I love service. I love people. Actually, uh, in we were in uh, we were in Abu Dhabi and then Saudi Arabia for my uh, birthday, and we stayed at. Uh, a Rosewood in Abu Dhabi. And I tell you what, I still talk to the concierge guy. To really? Day. Yeah. It's, Love it's, it. He's, he, we went to uh, Morocco, the Casbar, Casbar, Richard Branson spot yep. over there. And the guy was from Morocco that was at Rosewood. He put us in touch with his family and we had dinner at his family's house. That's amazing. And wow. Yeah. Just, just the, the people you meet, the engagement of, of, and just the level of detail. Uh, that's what I'm into. And I don't think it necessarily needs to be on a luxury side of things. I just think that needs to be embedded in people's culture. And, you know, that's one thing that's made us successful in the car business is that when we do a grand opening, there's an expe expectation for a Lexus grand opening, but then there's another lower expectation for a Toyota grand opening. So what we did in the, from our company standpoint is they're the same. A Lexus grand opening is just as big and dynamic as a Toyota grand opening. And what we found is that, and we didn't realize this, but that customers trade up or down within the brand. Yep. Lexus and Toyota. Yep. You know what I mean? So why shouldn't they get the same experience if they're moving to a Toyota or going to a Lexus? It should should be seamless, in my opinion, because you're under the same umbrella and we're running both stores. I love it. <laughs> you know, so that's how I look at it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, this man, it's fun, enjoyment, man. man. I'm glad we finally got this in the books, I'm glad too. <laughs> yeah, it's a great time. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. 
Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Mm-hmm.